So our, our series theme has been the mystical body and the sacraments. And tonight we welcome Dr. Tim O'Malley, who will be speaking on the in-personness of the sacraments. Tim is the Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Academic Director of the Center for Liturgy at the University of Notre Dame, where he holds a concurrent appointment in the Department of Theology. He received his undergraduate degree and Master of Theological Studies in Liturgical Studies from Notre Dame and completed a PhD at Boston College. His research and teaching interests at Notre Dame include liturgical and sacramental theology, marriage and family catechesis, and spirituality. He is the author of a number of books, including Real Presence, What Does It Mean and Why Does It Matter?, as well as Off the Hook, God, Love, Dating, and Marriage in a Hookup World. Tim is married and has two children. Please give him a round of applause. So a lot of you are probably uncomfortable in this weather. I'm not. I grew up in the South. This is exactly the proper temperature for human beings to live. The rest, Indiana's temperature is otherwise miserable, but I just save it for these weeks when we're finally hot. So it's good to see you, and it's good to be here with you. And I'm here to speak about presence in the sacraments, you know, the kind of theology on tap talks that attract everyone, like sex, how far is too far, or whatever. So I'm making a joke. So in, in, in 2020, in February, I was taking trips to places like St. Andrews in Scotland, Dublin, Ireland, Los Angeles, California, and San Francisco. I, I'm just telling you this to make you admire me, by the way. Then it all ended, right? It all ended on one fateful weekend. And my approach to this was to start to take very long walks around South Bend. Notre Dame students disappeared, which was both gift and curse. And yet, I began to take very long walks, and then I would encounter some people along my walks. Not many, because we live in South Bend, and when people hear that I walk from Granger to campus, they're very confused by anyone who would walk more than 0.3 miles. And yet, I began to walk, and I would encounter people and we began to treat each other as contagious, right? You remember this during COVID when you would suddenly encounter a neighbor and walk like this near them? That's what my life was like. Further, like all of you, I was worshiping at my house. Parishes were closed during Easter. We came back at Pentecost in 2020, though many of you likely were not here. And although we were present, I was present to my family. I was very, very present to my family. My family and my children were very present to me. But I was not present to a variety of other people. What was lost in this? In some sense, if you listen to public discourse, not much, right? Religiously, we could all perform our rites in our home, 
We could pray together and experience grace apart from one another. Maybe you even learn to love at-home worship. There are gifts to it. I say this. There are no clerics here, so I can say this. So, yes, sometimes my spouse and I would pause the homily because it was terrible. And instead, we would talk to one another and be like, that's a better homily. That's what that person should have done. Resume. There was very little liturgical music. At some places we worship, this was a gift. And yet there was, I think we have to acknowledge that there was something lost in the sacramental life for Catholics. What was lost and why do they matter? That's the question I want to answer tonight. And I want to do so through the catechism's definition of a sacrament. In the catechism, the sacraments are defined as efficacious signs instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church, whereby divine life is dispensed. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required disposition. Amen. Let's unpack this definition tonight very briefly because it's hot and there is a taco truck two things I believe are important to our lives. First, let's deal with signs. And I want to deal with signs through the question of why signs matter through the subtlety of Boston horn honking. So I lived for four years in Boston where people know how to honk a horn. They also know how to drive. Hoosiers are incapable of driving in a way I find acceptable. What does it mean to honk your horn in Boston? Well, if here, for example, this happened not so long ago, I was driving down 23, someone cut me off, I honked my horn, he paused his car, stopped it, got out and yelled at me in a way that threatened me. Now in Boston, this would be very inappropriate. My, my horn honking was just, hey, I am here. Whereas in Indiana, anytime you honk your horn, it means, I will kill you and your children. <laughs> so I did a beep beep, and he said, I hate you, what's wrong with you? Boston horn honking is a series of signs you have to enter into. There's beep beep, which means, hey, I'm here. There's beep, which means you are annoying me. There's beep, which means I will kill your mother. <laughs> But you have to know this, right? These are signs that require your interpretation. Sacraments are signs, and they're grounded in the signs that God has revealed the meaning of the world, the gift of the world. Signs begin for us in creation. The world is full of meaning. Yes, weddings can take place, without dining, right? I mean, after all, you could just do the whole thing in about six and a half minutes. I've been to Protestant weddings. That's exactly what happens. Not all Protestant weddings. This was a particular friend who got married. The wedding did not last, or the marriage did not last. So, but, but there's, there's a desire to increase the sort of meaning of this commitment to love 
dining, right? Yes, you can eat at Five Guys and stuff food in your mouth as quickly as possible. But you can also dine in such a way that there possesses a kind of meaning, a dialogue, a conversation. Of course, we die, right? And there are signs surrounding this by which we mark this moment of our possible death, of life. Stuff matters, and these are the creation signs that in Catholicism point towards the possibility of God. But creation signs can also be terrifying. Once upon a time, I was walking on Notre Dame's campus, and I was watching a squirrel. Squirrel was so happy. It was hopping to and fro, garbage cans full of infinite food. Then I saw a hawk, and the hawk came and crushed that life from that squirrel immediately, ripping it up into the air, tearing its throat out in the middle of the flight, and eating it. Some people say, like, well, creation is so beautiful. It's also potentially terrifying. We know this from COVID, right? Creation is terrifying as well as gift. So how do we know that creation is good and not not good? In reality, God reveals to us in these creation signs the history of God's own involvement with us, God's loving involvement in history. Take water, for example. Water is gift and curse at once. Those of you who own a house in a flood zone know what curse is. But water is used by God, what? To quench our thirst, to kill us, or, or to kill sin and death. There's the waters of the Red Sea, the water that flows from the rock, that water that flows from the side of Christ upon the cross in St. John's Gospel. All of this water matters. God takes created signs and uses them to point towards our ultimate good or flourishing. Sacraments are efficacious signs. And they're efficacious. It's not just the language of signs. Sacraments do things. You often hear um, folks refer to politicians, right? They say like, you're Catholic in name only. Your baptism doesn't matter. Guess what? That narrative is wrong. I don't care. There's no such thing in Catholics. There's no such thing as Catholics in name only. You're baptized. It happened. It affected because of the promise of God's word, right? In Genesis, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God didn't say, let there be light. But I don't know, do the people deserve the light? The power of God's word is what affects the sacrament. But there's another dimension to this. It does, they don't just do things. I had a, a, a catechist I once worked with in Boston who kind of compared the, like all the sacraments to Gatorade, right? You drink, you have the sacraments, you receive this, this grace that just ups you. Grace was like Gatorade. That's wrong in some sense because 
As St. Thomas Aquinas points out, sacraments affect by signifying. They do the thing because they're the sign that they are. You can't separate the act of what it does to you from the act of what it signifies. So in baptism, you wash. That washing cleanses you from original sin. It's not magical. It's because water matters, right? Water matters. It cleanses. It, um, you know, I have had two infant children, and it's a remarkable moment. You come to a new appreciation of water when you have children. Like for us, bathing is like, yeah, I would like to bathe overall. Sometimes I don't, but I, I'd like to, especially during COVID. Probably a lot of you didn't bathe. Um, but you're like, overall, you're like, bathing, good. When you have children, bathing is a battle beyond all battles. It's an intensive battle. There's a lot of fighting over bath time. Bathing cleanses, right? And so in baptism, by signifying the act of cleansing, there's an effect that takes place, right? In this case, it enters you into a new relationship with Christ. You die to sin. You rise to new life. All of this is to say, and this is the point of this, is matter matters. You can't experience the sacramental life of the church virtually. Stuff matters. Candles, water, what looks like bread and wine, all of this matters. Grace, as we'll see in a bit, is not Gatorade. It's not abstract, my personal grace disconnected from material, uh, a sort of a material encounter. So then what does that lead us to the second part, right? So sacraments are efficacious signs. Now we'll enter the second part. They're instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church. What we don't mean is that Jesus gave the church the formal books for the sacrament. Jesus didn't say, all right, y'all, I'm going to publish some texts, reinvent the printing. I'm going to invent the printing press. I'll give it to Gutenberg, who, by the way, didn't fully invent it, but whatever. Um, I'm going to give it to Gutenberg later, and then he'll just, you know, print those things out. We have to admit that some of the sacraments that we do look different than Jesus. There's those who say, like, well, the last, when we celebrate the Eucharist, it doesn't look like Jesus did. Yes, correct. When we heal the sick, it doesn't look exactly what Jesus did. Correct. Rather, what do we mean by instituted by Christ? Well, let's think about who Jesus is. Jesus is the Word made flesh, as the Gospel of John says. He's fully human and fully divine, the splendor of the Father. I personally would not have become human if I was God. I don't like any of you enough. You're annoying. You ask things of me. Right? But in what Christ did, he entered in the fullness of what it means to be human. He consecrated everything that it means to be human to the Father. The example I've given, undoubtedly I've given this example in theology of, on taps before, but you probably weren't there. And if you were, I don't care. Right? Like, I wouldn't have become a baby. 
A lot of you probably look at babies and say, like I did once upon a time, babies, that's the life, right? How many of you have just been held and fed by someone recently? You have not. You're like, I have to go to that taco truck? Why doesn't June buggies bring me the taco? I'm hungry. People don't normally smile at you as you walk around. They do in the Midwest more than on the East. I have to admit, they do. They smile at you. It makes me uncomfortable. Sometimes I think they want to rob me. But to an infant, everyone smiles with joy, right? That's what I thought. Like, then I had my son, and I'm like, oh, man, infancy is terrible. You can't explain your desires to another person. You can't. Well, you cry all the time. You poop yourself, which is very embarrassing. I mean, I would never want to poop myself again. I, I know that I'm destined for that. That's, that's the irony of human life. I began pooping myself, and I'll end pooping myself. And yet that's what the word made flesh to do, right? To enter into the fullness of human existence from, in the case of Jesus' life, from life until death. He did all the things that it means to be human as the God-man, Jesus Christ. He healed. He infused every dimension of our lives with love. Yes, he very blatantly instituted baptism and Eucharist. He healed the sick. He gave a lot of wine at a wedding the exact amount of wine you need when you're out of wine, and then he gave more wine. And yet his whole life was an institution of a sacramental system in which the word became flesh and dwelt among us and matter mattered. Jesus, of course, did not say to us in the Gospels or anywhere else that there were seven sacraments. In principle, it could have been more, in fact, once upon a time, it was more. Those of you who are Anglophiles have perhaps seen the coronation of Elizabeth II. Not the first, because if you're an Anglophile and you've seen that coronation, you're a vampire. Right? This coronation was linked to a once upon a time sacramental rite where oil was bestowed and a crown was bestowed and there was a laying of hands. And yet the church settled in the history of her tradition upon seven sacraments, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, covering every moment of our lives from birth until death. It's biological. Everything is taken up from our lives born in baptism to our lives given over to the Father in love at death in the anointing of the sick and viaticum. Seven days linked to creation and our recreation. Human life and all of its biological wonder transformed. We're back to matter matters. Now I speak not as a theologian, but personally. The reason why I love Catholicism is not because of everything that happens in the church all the time. It's because I want my life, all of my life, 
No part of my life apart from Christ, from my birth to my death, to every moment of my day, from the boredom of grading, to the joy of my marriage and my family, all of which are embodied, by the way, right? That's the, can I say this? That's the shitty part of COVID. It took away each other. We became plague to each other. That's the terrible part. Our bodies cease to matter. Life, I think the proper word kind of sucked. It sucked because we were apart from each other. Yes, God gave grace. God always gives grace. God loves us more than I love anyone. And yet, I need stuff. I need matter. If I tell my wife, like, hey, lady, I love you, but I'm not going to give you flowers ever. And I'll never tell you. And I'll never look at you. And I'll never be in your presence. What does that mean? It's abstract. That's the gift of the church, and it's entrusted to the church. These rights are entrusted to the church. Jesus didn't hand out books and say, this is the liturgy that you'll celebrate from time immortal. The church receives what is given. She prays in history, in time, in space. That doesn't mean that anything or everything can be changed, but we should be less freaked out by the changes of the sacraments across time and space. That brings us to our penultimate point. The sacraments are efficacious signs instituted by Christ entrusted to the church, whereby divine life is dispensed. The problem with the word dispense, if you misunderstand it, is that you think, you know what, grace, it's just kind of, I don't know, it's like a quantity. When I think of dispensed, I think of Pez dispensers. My little bit of grace, hmm, that's delicious. No, it's not delicious. It's Pez, but I was a child once upon a time. It tastes basically like Tums. But that's a misunderstanding of grace. What is the Latin word grace? Grazia. It means gift. Right? Grace is the gift of divine life given to us. I didn't deserve it. I don't own it. I'm not like some fancy person who can earn it. Sometimes Catholicism falls into what we call a kind of Jansenism, where we imagine ourselves capable of earning this grace or Pelagianism, like, I deserve it. Come on, I can do it. No, 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 no. It's all a gift. You all suck. So do I. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. My fault. My fault. My most grievous fault. Right? None of this I earned. God became human that we might become divine. That's the gift of divine life. The sacraments are an obligations. They're a way that I participate in divine life. Every dimension of our lives becomes divine. More stunning today than perhaps than ever. My life perhaps like yours, is exceedingly boring. I do the same thing every day. This is unique. I'm here with you. There is a food truck, and you're holding a beer. 
This is slightly different than my average evening, which involves me watching Sophia the First, potentially. But I do the same thing every day of my life. And yet this life, this life I've been given is to become divine. St. Thomas Aquinas has a Eucharistic antiphon that I love related to the sacraments. It's called O Sacrum Convivium. I'll read it in Latin and then translate it. O Sacrum Convivium in Quo Christus Sumitor. In Quo Christus, or I, that's, uh, I put in Quo Christus Sumitor twice, so I'll start again. O Sacrum Convivium in Quo Christus Sumitor. Recolitur memoria passionis eos mens impleto gratia, et future gloria nobis pignus dator. Alleluia. O sacred banquet in which Christ is consumed or supped upon, in which the memory of his passion is recalled, the mind is filled with grace, and the pledge of future glory is given to us. Alleluia. O sacred banquet, right in the Blessed Sacrament, in the Eucharist in particular, we receive a banquet, a festivity that interrupts our temporality. My time is linear. It's all linear, right? I get up in the morning, I have two cups of coffee, I go to the gym, at least before COVID. I then do X, Y, or Z, but suddenly time interrupts in the Eucharist, right? This is the sacred banquet. And who is consumed or taken in? It is Christ who enters into this time, enters festivity into non-festive time, into linear time, into a, a sort of time of a capitalism in which we mark time primarily by money. Here, the memory of Christ's passion is recalled. This is how divine life is given to us. We remember a love beyond all telling. And we receive this love. The mind is filled with grace. This is why, if you said uh, virtual masses don't mean as much to me, yes. Yes, they shouldn't have. They're triage. They're what we did in the worst case situation. Because you are meant to receive this love tangibly, to eat it and drink it, and to actually have it eat and drink you, or him eat or drink you. And yet in this, our gathering together, right? I, confession. I was once a youth ministry assistant at this parish when I was an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame in the fall of 2000. Dear friends, I want to tell you something. I thought that this was one of the ugliest spaces I've ever been in in my entire life. This was the year 2000. It continued often looking like that. And yet, dear friends, it's us gathered together in Eucharistic worship together, voices out of tune. Poor Daniel. He works here. He hears your voices out of tune. He knows what they sound like. 
Real people who know music know that you're out of tune. It's probably Sean, Sean Allen. He's the one. That man cannot sing. Can you sing? You cannot sing, but we hear you not not singing. Right? And yet in that world, right? In that, that is the pledge of future glory. Our voices raised in common to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the materiality of it matters. That is the interruption of divine life into our world now. Sometimes people say like liturgy is heaven, like coming to earth. Yes, but earth is not erased. The materiality of that is not erased. Life and death is not erased. The sacraments dispense divine life. And yet, it, they, and this is the last part, as I promised, I would not go too long. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. What are these required dispositions? How do we receive them aright? First, we must be present. And I mean quite literally present, just there. At all. That's the beginning. I once had an undergraduate who's like, I don't know if I fully believe. And I was like, that's okay, come to Mass. And she's like, but no, 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 I feel guilty. I don't fully believe. I was like, that's not my worry. Right? How many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have shown up to the Eucharistic liturgy not fully believing, not fully knowing? Presence starts with caring. Do you think I always want to go to Mass? I have two children who are freaking obnoxious. Your child looks beautiful. (laughs) They bother me the whole time. I'd be lying to you if I said at some point during the pandemic, especially when the obligation wasn't fully dispensed, or it was still dispensed, or I didn't say, you know what would be easier? Doing anything other than this dragging a kid to mass with a mask, getting them dressed at all, right? Because they don't like to be dressed. And yet that's it. Presence begins with presence. And that's what actually leads to active participation in the mass, being there, using our bodies. Sometimes active participation is reduced to like, Do you have a formal role in the liturgy? You always have a formal role in the liturgy to be there. What's the other disposition in the sacraments? Wonder. Wonder that such a gift is given. I must admit, during the one thing that COVID-19 taught me was wonder. I missed it all. I complained about it before. I complained about the preaching the music. I promise I won't tell you where I go to mass. I complained about it all. I complained. And yet wonder is the recommencement of a disposition to receive what is gift. It's to enter into a space of life, of love, of a contemplative life, to wonder. How do you receive the sacraments aright? Take time to receive them. Get rid of all the things in your life. The one gift of COVID, I think, as a whole for all of us. So we recognize how little or how much we could do without, I should say. 
Do you begin the day in prayer? Do you give yourselves over to quiet? And I know what it's like to be a parent. I know that that's not an easy, do you give your day over to quiet? I don't, I mean, I don't know. I pray morning prayer every morning and my children are always interrupted, but I still give it to God because, well, I don't, I try to give it to God. I sometimes fail miserably. It makes it sound like I'm a monk. I mostly do it for about three months and then forget for about two months and then resume it with a spirit of deep guilt. There's also the love of ecclesial life, including, including community. Liturgy and the sacraments are not your private show. They're not your private devotion where you alone can receive. You're all young adults. In my recommendation, young adults should never always go to the same mass ever all the same time. You need old people. You need old people because, well, first of all, old people are awesome. They get to go to bed very early. But second, ecclesial life doesn't just look like fancy, beautiful young people. It's life and all of its lifeness. You should love that ecclesial life, that parish community, that older woman so radically out of tune. You should love that community. This isn't your private show, the Eucharist, the sacraments, baptism, none of it. It's not your opportunity to be alone before God. There's moments for that. And that leads us, lastly, into solidarity with the neighbor. Gosh, dear friends, at Mass and beyond, did we not recognize how little we knew our neighbor during COVID? Mass was canceled. And the very people who are most in need were forgotten in every dimension of our community. Not because we hated them, just didn't know them. Solidarity begins at home. As Pope Benedict XVI wrote in God is Love, a Eucharist that does not result in the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. A Eucharist or any sacrament that does not result in the concrete practice of love is intrinsically fragmented. Solidarity with the neighbor. The neighbor in our parishes the neighbors on our streets, the sacramental life is not about a group of Christians who just all happen to get together and believe and love all the same things. It's about transformation of the neighborhood of our communities into spaces of love where love alone reigns. So to return to our initial point, what are the sacraments and why should we miss them? They're everything. They're not just like little moments where we receive our bit of grace and become like Mario, capable of new powers like shooting fireballs from our hands. That is a very particular 1980s reference. Rather, they're how our whole life becomes united to Jesus Christ. Not just our life abstractly, not our intellectual life, not some life in the head, but life in our flesh and blood selves. Thanks. I just have a quick question. So you had mentioned the Catholic in name only and how that's not a thing because of baptism. What about practicing the faith throughout your life as well and how that factors in? Yeah, I think uh, practicing the faith is the ideal, right? I mean, that's, St. Augustine refers to um, 
a church in which we, we would say like there's a corpus permixtum, a mixed body. And my fear of terms like Catholic and name only is that the moment you say that someone is Catholic and name only, you risk the possibility that you in fact are also Catholic and name only. And so I'm most worried personally about my own salvation and my own, my own lack. So yes, sacraments bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. We should receive them with the required dispositions. And even with Eucharistic coherency, which I know Bishop Rhodes probably talked about, right? We have to attune ourselves to the Eucharist to receive it a, a right. But I'm, I'm more reticent to say that someone is, I, I, if we're baptized, we share a common identity in Christ and that matters. And I don't get, to view the fullness of your life or my life or the other person's life. So I'm less this, I'm less judgy of it because I just don't know. Um, I'm a layman. I struggle with like basic things like hatred of everyone almost. And like drivers, other human beings. I'm very worried about my own salvation. My children have taught me how impatient I am. And it, it's really taught me a lot like, well, you got a lot of problems, Tim. Work on those. Also, you don't have to ask questions. You can just like say anything you're thinking about at all. I know like Tim Troutner is probably thinking about like something very obscure. I'd be happy to hear that. Or would you parse out sort of the difference between the efficacious part of that definition you read and the dispenses grace part? Are those sort of coextensive or are they doing different different work in that definition? Are they different parts of how we understand yeah. the sacraments? So it's, a, it's an astute observation. They don't entirely, they're not entirely distinct from one another. So efficacious does something because of how Christ works through the church, right? For example, um, let's say that, let's say that there's a terrible priest in the world, which we've learned exists. And the blessed sacrament is bestowed because of the promise of, the, of Christ in the church, which means that bread and wine becomes Christ's body and blood. So there is an efficaciousness to the sacrament, but that doesn't mean that there's not a sort of subjective attunement of ourselves to receive what's given. And I think that's, so they're linked, right? Because What's given is given, but we have to want to receive what's given. Analog like an analogy of this, right? Like Tim, the dad, wants to give gifts to his children. Literally, I'm not using like metaphorical gifts. I mean, I want to give literal gifts to my children. And objectively, I bestow that gift, right? I get my son the drum set he desires. I hate my own life because I bestowed that drum set and yet I give it to him because he desires it. And yet there's an attunement of my son to receive that gift in the proper sense, right? If he's like, dad, you know what? You, you, that's right. That's what I deserve. That's not right, especially because he does not deserve a drum set. 
But if he says, Tim, well, he doesn't say Tim, but Dad, I'm really grateful for your drum set and thank you. Now he'll grow into that. But that's, I think, the distinction is that Christ in the church gives objectively what is given. That's the efficacious dimension. And the disposition is our own subjective reception of that, which Christ allows us to offer in return. So in the Eucharist, right, if you look and think about the Eucharistic prayer, Christ gives himself to us, and then we're supposed to offer ourselves in return. That's the subjective disposition of offering. So does that help? Yeah. You can also say it doesn't. I, like I said, I... You're friends now at this stage. You've endured the heat with me. Hi, thank you. Um, this is sort of random, but could you uh, talk a little bit about like what actually is happening in confirmation and why it's a separate sacrament from baptism? No, I, I actually almost can't. I mean, I will, but so confirmation is complicated. The history of confirmation is complicated. It originated in the early church as a sort of literal confirming of the sacrament of baptism. Early church history tells us that it was a bestowal of grace, or a bestowal, the bishop would lay hands post-baptism upon the confirmandi. But of course, the bishop giving this sacrament initially was rather historically complicated because then dioceses began to bloom like crazy. And so a bishop might not come until well after baptism was bestowed. So they would bestow confirmation at whatever age it was bestowed. By the time you get to the 17th, 18th, 19th century, confirmation is bestowed around 14 or 15, although that's also when first Eucharist was given. And it wasn't until Pius X argued that the Blessed Sacrament should be given to little children at around the age of seven, that a complication occurred, which was, so the traditional sacraments historically were given in baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, right? Um, But around Pius X, you had a movement of Eucharist to the age of seven or the age of reason, which doesn't mean that seven-year-olds are reasonable. Uh, It means that they're capable of recognizing the distinction from ordinary bread from what's given in the sacrament. Um, And actually, despite the weirdness of that, that's around the time my son recognized the distinction between ordinary bread and that Jesus was given to him. So um, nonetheless, Confirmation, though, didn't move with it. It actually kind of extended out. And so in the U.S., you ended up with confirmation between the ages of roughly 7th or 8th grade through uh, junior high, high school. A lot of people said, like, confirmation is the moment you reclaim your baptismal identity and make it your own. Okay, that's literally what we fought the Lutherans over. Um, so, okay, that's a, that's a surprise, eh? Uh, and so I think confirmation today, actually a medieval sense of confirmation is closer to the truth. It's the moment in which you're able to consecrate the whole world under Christ. And you know when that can occur? 
somewhere between the ages of seven and 16. And I'm okay with that distinction. Um, you know, I think my son would have been okay with confirmation at this age, but I like all sorts of transformations occur around age when you actually have children and see them go through the sacraments. And you're kind of like, oh, that actually worked much more effectively than I thought it did. Um, you know, my seven or eight year old was like, wow, I love Jesus now. And I was like, wow, I really thought you were ready earlier, but I was wrong. And, and so I don't think we should understand confirmation as like, I'm, I'm making my faith my own. Like, what does that mean? How many 12-year-olds are capable of making the faith their own fully? They're not because they're 12, 13, 14. They're existentially complicated. And yet, whatever age confirmation is bestowed, I think we can acknowledge that it, be, it can become an occasion where you recognize like, wow, I have a vocation in the world to consecrate the world to Christ. And if that's at eight, that's awesome. And if that's at, in our own diocese, for example, 12 or 13, 14, that's okay too. I, I'm, a, I'm liberal on that question. Yeah, so I know that the um, like Eastern Catholics and um, the Orthodox like, give communion to babies. Um, and I like, no, we obviously don't do that. You just brought up, you know, the age of reason when they can distinguish, like, I'm, what I'm, you might not know, but like, what is the, their theological justification for, or explanation for, you know, giving communion at such a young age? And, you know, why don't, why don't we give communion? I mean, to infants, I know you just kind of gave the explanation about age of reason, but unpack that. So first of all, we have to acknowledge that there is often the giving of the blessed sacrament initially at baptism in Orthodox, but then you wait a while before you receive again. So we have to acknowledge that initial fact. I mean, a child's, this is, so I studied St. Augustine, and St. Augustine has a letter that he wrote to Januarius, which was, so Januarius was kind of a terrible person. He wrote to Augustine saying, hey, why do we do this thing that I don't think should never be done Tell me, why, tell me why everyone I love is wrong. Love, Januarius. And Augustine wrote back saying, like, shut up, Januarius. Some of these things don't matter as much as you think. And so orthodoxy is determined that the infant can receive the Eucharist and become, in the fullness of reception, receive baptism and what they would call chrismation or confirmation in the Eucharist at once. Sometimes they wait much longer to receive the Eucharist again. And Catholics wait a longer period of time. And do I think that an infant receiving the Blessed Sacrament is still graced by that sacrament? Yeah, absolutely. Do I think that there's benefits from waiting a while to receive it? I didn't until my own son came along and then I saw the benefits of the Roman practice was like, well, he had a desire for the Eucharist that, to be frank, challenged me. Because I was like, uh, this is, you know, first communion prep. Oh, my gosh. Terrible retreats uh, of kids. I got to hear this. Like, I teach this stuff. I don't want to hear it. I showed up. I was like very moved by it all. I was moved by my son's desire for the Blessed Sacrament. He knew it was coming. So... It actually kind of challenged me, like, what's wrong with you, Tim? So 
not not that that's an answer, but but it's acknowledging the fact that I'm I'm open to many practices that are not, as St. Augustine said, again against faith and morals. And one can receive, I think, like if Roman Catholic Church tomorrow said, infants can receive, I'd be like, absolutely. There's no problem with that. No problem at all. On the other hand, I see the fittingness of it at the age of seven. There, there's also a fittingness there. Tim, you mentioned that part of the beauty of the sacraments is that they follow us through all stages of our life from when we poop ourselves the first time to when we return to that um, at the end of life. Um, and something that I think about a lot, and this is probably too big of a question to answer in a Q&A, but... No, I will, I will answer it. Tim Troutner will tell you I will answer literally anything. A lot of our sacraments and the initiation sacraments often happen early in life, and there's kind of this between when you are confirmed or get married or receive holy orders, if that's your calling, to the time when you might be in line for anointing. You die. That, right. Just say the word for me. You when die. you die, yeah. that there's really only two sacraments that you encounter on a regular basis, which would be confession and um, the Eucharist. How do we, as a church, start to approach um, the idea that this is still very embodied and very alive as it becomes kind of a monotonous thing in our lives or could be. Um, how, how do we kind of bridge that gap to keep it something that's with us at all times? I guess. Yeah, it's a nice question. First, you pray the mass. So I don't know. You just, you grow old slowly and then it starts speeding up. I know that sounds crazy, but it does. And one of the things I was thinking about during COVID is what did I miss most during the mass? Like Eucharistic attend. Why did I watch live stream masses where I didn't receive the blessed sacrament? I didn't need to. I could have. I, I know the liturgy of the hours. I can pray them as a family. It's because I missed the words. I missed offering my life up from week to week in the Blessed Sacrament. I think one of the ironies as you get older is that you stop looking for interesting things. As crazy as that sounds, but here I am almost 40, and I just don't expect anything remarkable to happen to me. That, that sounds terrible. But it's actually the great gift of my life is that I just go and most things don't change. Like, yeah, eventually, like, my spouse could get diagnosed with a terrible illness. I could be diagnosed with a terrible illness. My kids could be diagnosed with a I always think about terrible illnesses. I'm Irish Catholic, so I only think about death. Um, those are moments that will be dramatic changes, but I don't know, I don't want dramatic change at this stage of my existence. What's the gift of that? And what I wanna offer is my life unto Jesus. I love him and my life is so his and I wanna give that to him. And so in the confession too is the same thing. I wanna admit where I didn't give it and those are the sacraments that I receive. I mean, of course, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist are really of a key my vocation is to consecrate my life unto God. 
That includes my students. Like, I'm an incredibly impatient person. My kids have taught me to be more patient. I, hate, I hated my students once upon a time. I hated them. I found them obnoxious and lazy. Sorry if you took my class. Um, I don't anymore. I, I don't. I, I don't. I see them as gift. And I'm seeing my life transformed over time. And it's age and patience and love. And that's why I keep going. So, yeah, you get bored. I also don't think boredom's terrible because sometimes you're bored and that's the moment you're actually invited to contemplation. Sometimes we think boredom is the occasion we're supposed to like do something new. I think especially amongst young adults, you're like, oh, I'm bored. That means I must leave my beloved or find a new career. And I'm always just like, shut up. Like life is boring, get over it. I'm an inspirational speaker, they hire me. Life is a little bit boring. See, got listen. Got time for probably two more questions. Okay, hello. Um, so we were kind of talking about like your analogy with the vending machine and Gatorade thing, how um, that's not quite like, yeah, that's not what grace is. And we we're kind of wondering like, like if you treat grace, like, you know, you get put your money in the vending machine, get a Gatorade, like, is that more of an incomplete analogy? And like, yes. like would it more be just like you're receiving Gatorades and it's yeah. a gift. It's more like gift. Mm -hmm. And what, what's the gift you receive? Like, I don't know, like, Here's the analogy I give. So my son was born and he, we adopted him, he was born, and he was born in NICU. And for 24 hours, he never, we never held him or anything. And then after that 24 hours, I held him and he opened his eyes to me suddenly while I was holding him, my wife was sleeping for, we had like five nights in the worst Hampton Inn in the cosmos. And she was sleeping and he opened his eyes and I said, I will love you forever and ever. That's gift, right? It's a generous outpouring of a love that is not stingy, that is not like, I give you a little, no, 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 I'm gonna give you everything. Of course, my son then, I think he pooped right after that. So I, I'm actually not kidding. I think he actually did poop. That revealed a lot of our relationship. Um, but that's grace. Grace is gift. It's love. It's love of a God who didn't need to love you and doesn't then pour out a little bit of stinginess here or there. Like, I got my grace. Now I'm going to move on. Gosh, I hope to get my other grace sometime soon. No, no, no. It's it's. It's always everything. There's no such thing in our God who gives just a little. God gives it all, right? That's what he says in John. And he loved his own and he loved them unto the end, right? That's what I'm, that's grace. Grace is he loved his own and he loved them unto the end. Final question. Who wants it? 
Oh gosh. Not Tim. Don't do Tim. George? Great. Uh, hi, Tim. Thanks for coming to talk tonight. Uh, my question is, how would you respond to someone who says they love Jesus, but they don't see the point in coming to Mass? Well, first of all, yeah. Like, you can love... Well, first, I grew up as a Protestant in the South. Or I didn't... I wasn't Protestant, but all my friends were Protestant. This is what they said to me. Like, I love just love Jesus. And in principle, this all works, right? Like, you can love Jesus. But, like, why do I have to be around the people Jesus loves or his own presence and stuff and matter and people and all those things. If you love Jesus, you want to be around the people that Jesus is with. I mean, this sounds very pious and I'm almost embarrassed to say it as a theologian, but if you want to be, if you love Jesus, you want to be around those that he loves. And that means everyone like if I could form my own church, and I've thought a lot about it, because I really have, I've thought a lot about forming my own church, be full of people who look like me, who thought like me. And guess what? Jesus said, like, screw you, Tim. This is the people I've chosen, the human race. So suck it up, Tim. And go to Mass, encounter me, but also encounter my people, all of them. And I think that's the thing that has transformed my life most. I mean, I love the Blessed Sacrament. I wrote a whole freaking book on the Blessed Sacrament, but I don't, I don't encounter that apart from the people I love or have to love because Jesus told me to. Uh, I just wrote a column for a newspaper, right? Like what does St. James say? Who are you supposed to love if you love Jesus? The orphan and the widow. And if you're not around the orphan and the widow, you don't love Jesus. That's what St. James says, and it's fine for me. So be around the orphan and the widow. And you can't if you're just going to stay at home in your private little room and watch a live stream liturgy. That's all. Let's give Dr. O'Malley a round of applause.